This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a murder and references to rape and drug use, which some people may find triggering. So, as always, listener discretion is advised. Today's case begins in the rural village of Mundersley on the North Norfolk coast. As my partner and I travel up through Essex and Suffolk and into Norfolk, I find myself trying to describe how to find Mundersley on the map. Slightly distracted by navigating the many roundabouts and eerily quiet dual carriageways which form the circle of the Norwich Ring Road, I tell him, find Norwich and look to 12 o'clock and on the coast you'll see Cromer. Great Yarmouth is at three and somewhere between 12 and one you'll find Mundersley. This is how I've begun to think about Norfolk. It's not quite geographically accurate but all roads seem to lead inwards to Norwich. It's the only city in the county, and it forms the centre of what I've started to think of as a clock face. Mundersley is one of those small seaside resorts that make up the majority of the Norfolk coastline. It sits in a dip just away from the crumbling cliff edge, a village which mixes newer buildings with more traditional fare, thatched roofs and stone cottages. In the summer, According to its somewhat old-fashioned website, it's frequented by many holiday-goers, drawn to the miles of sandy beaches that the coast has to offer. We're visiting on a mostly grey day in early February, though despite the bleakness, you can still see that the parts of Mundesley and its high street through which we drive could be described as quaint. We pull into our destination, the church car park, and sit there for a moment, gathering ourselves before getting out. Someone in a field nearby is burning something, and the wind carries large gusts of smoke over in our direction. For a few days after the trip, every time I put on my scarf and coat, I can still smell that fire, and it transports me back to Mundersley. Our destination that day is, as always, a gravestone. It's in the parish graveyard, in the newer section which sits almost on the cliff edge, ringed by the coastal path and only a couple of metres from the steep drop to the beach below. The headstone I want is midway into a neat line, and it stands out as the only one of its kind in eyesight. It's a large, light-coloured stone, which is starting to speckle with age, split in half by what looks like a carved tassel bookmark. One side reads, In memory of Natalie Jane Earp Pearman, and below that, the words, Father Forgive. On the other side, it says, Tragically Murdered, 25th of December 1975 to 20th of November 1992, Luke 2334. Below the grave, in the centre, sits a pot with no flowers, and to the right and left are two stone creatures, a somewhat mossy rabbit and a cat. As I pay my respects, I remember an article I read from, I think the mid-90s or early 2000s, which reported that the stone cat had been stolen, and I find myself wondering if it's a new cat or if someone had had a change of heart and returned the old one. After the brief visit, my partner and I exit the graveyard via a small wooden gate which leads onto the coast path. It doesn't take long before we come to a spot close to the cliff edge. 
From our vantage point, we can see the slope of a concrete path which leads down to the yellow sand and the churning muddy brown waters of the North Sea. The wind is high that day and the waves break in a mass of white foam. I know that further along the seafront you'll find cafes, an amusement arcade and an ice cream parlour, but where we are there is nothing but a few new-looking flats and the church behind us, and nothing in front but the cracked concrete path that leads down to the windswept beach. By all accounts, Natalie Pierman hated it here in Mundusley, the place where she spent the majority of her childhood. By the time she was 14 years old, the village no longer fitted the skin she wished to inhabit. It's taken a while to work out how I wanted to frame Natalie's story. She's been called plenty of things in the papers over the years, and you read the same types of descriptions over and over. Murder victim, prostitute, strangled teenage prostitute, red light girl victim of drug addiction, and once, perhaps for Natalie worst of all, an ordinary girl. It's easy to condense the lives of people down to these sound bites, but it's much more difficult to come in almost 30 years later and sift through the stories to try to find the person underneath, especially when that someone was a 16-year-old girl with a reported drug addiction who'd been operating as a sex worker at the time of her murder. It's easy to let those facts become the narrative, or to go in the other direction and say that Natalie Pierman was an ordinary girl from a family in a rural Norfolk village who was led astray by the promises of drugs and money, too young to understand the world she was slowly sinking into. I'm going to try and not use any of those narrative devices over the course of this episode, though you might find that they creep in and that the story meanders at times from one to the other. There's a real problem in the way that the murder of sex workers are reported in this country. You'll hear it again and again throughout the coming episodes. Newspapers and television believing that the only way the public can feel sympathy for these missing or murdered women is if the person were once a good girl, a pretty girl, if they hear that they grew up like the rest of us and that their nice lives were somehow knocked off track. And of course, there is an element of that, unfortunately but it's taken and exaggerated and used to elicit emotion as if we're unable to feel sympathy for a vulnerable girl or woman who chooses to sell sex for money. This is the story of the murder of Natalie Pierman, a 16-year-old girl with big dreams who was once described as a great girl who loved to have fun. Her only downfall was wanting to be grand too quick. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. Natalie Jane Earp was born in December 1975. On her birth, she received a Bible from the nurses who delivered her, inscribed, Natalie Jane, 
the first baby born in the maternity department, Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, Christmas Day, 1975. Her parents, Lynn and Rod, an oil worker, split when she was only one years old, and by the time she was eight, she and her older brother John and younger sister Jenny were being brought up by their stepdad, Chris Pearman. Chris was an engineer in a plant hire firm, and Lynn, who had been a nurse, gave up her career to help look after the home and her growing family, which would soon include two more children. In 1986, Anthony, and a year later, the youngest, Georgina. A lot of the information about Natalie's early life comes from an article published in The Guardian in 1994 called Death of an Ordinary Girl. The article was written by a well-respected investigative journalist called Nick Davis, who was one of the people responsible for uncovering the News of the World phone hacking scandal, including the hacking of the voicemail of schoolgirl Millie Dowler. In 1997, Davis released a book entitled Dark Heart, The Shocking Truth About Hidden Britain, in which his article on Natalie was framed within the premise that what sparked young people to turn to sex work was in part related to the poverty they experienced as children. And I've tried to bear this agenda in mind when using the article as a source. The Pearman family lived in a council house at 19 Cowper Close in Mundesley. By the time Natalie was 12, her mother was pregnant with the youngest of her children, a difficult pregnancy through which she ended up needing round-the-clock care, a job which fell to her husband, Chris. Chris's employers would not let him take the time off to care for his wife, though, and so he was forced to give up his job. And after the birth of their daughter, when it came time to look for work, he discovered that there was very little around, and he struggled to find new employment. Throughout this difficult period in the Pearmans' lives, Natalie was a pupil at North Walsham High School, where she reportedly excelled at sports. Her dream at the time was to join the Air Force, and she liked to spend her free moments drawing and painting. As the family's money struggles continued, Natalie took a weekend job at a burger bar next to the amusement arcade overlooking Mundesley Beach. She was 14 years old, and it was as a result of this job that Natalie's life started to change. As with my last episode, the case of Joanna Young, the isolation of the village appears to have led to a listlessness among the teenage population. And in Mundesley, the focus of that listlessness was the beach, where a group of teenagers would gather in the evenings, having fun and apparently having sex and smoking weed. Soon after she started working at the burger bar, Natalie found herself falling in with the beach crowd, and it wasn't long until her family started to notice a change in her behaviour. She would stay out late around Mundesley and return in the early hours drunk or high or dragged home by her stepfather. The Nick Davies article described one of these occasions, saying, One night when two boys brought her home full of cider, Lynn took off her slipper and beat her from one end of the house to the next. It then goes on to say, They started locking her indoors, but Natalie fought to get out, smashed a window once, tried to squeeze herself through the cat flap another time, and nearly succeeded. Speaking to the Eastern Daily Press a few days after Natalie's death, 
Lynn Pearman told the journalist that Natalie was a lively, outgoing, friendly person, a beautiful daughter. She was career-minded and had everything going for her. I saw a total personality change when she started mixing with drugs. From then on, I saw someone who looked like my daughter, but didn't act like her. In another article from around the same time, she said, She had her first sexual experience, though she hid it from us, and didn't tell me until some time later. I cannot know for sure whether she was raped or whether things just went further than she intended. But it changed her. The article goes on to describe how she would come home in the middle of the night high on LSD, cocaine or magic mushrooms, and how the family was starting to struggle to cope especially as her stepfather Chris had not long learned that his mother had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. It was around this time that Natalie decided she wanted to be taken into care. Speaking about this, Lynn Pierman said, It was one of the hardest decisions of my life. It went against every instinct, but in my heart I knew there was no alternative. In the lead-up to this decision, Natalie's behaviour had worsened. One night, when she arrived home late, Chris hit her, leaving a bruise. Sometime during this same period, it had been reported that 14-year-old Natalie had suffered a miscarriage when she was around 10 weeks pregnant. Following the family decision to put her into care, she spent some time at a children's home near Cromer, not far away from Mundusley. Her family refused to be the ones to make the first move to fix their relationship with her with her stepdad in particular seeming to be resolute in this, even telling her that she was no longer to use his surname, instead insisting that she use Earp, her father's name. Despite being taken into care, Natalie still had her friends from school and her boyfriend, a man five years older than her called Simon. Some of the timeline of the next couple of years of Natalie's life is a little uncertain. She was moved for a while from the children's home to live with one foster family and then another, but these didn't last. Following an argument with Simon, she attempted to overdose on contraceptive pills, and when that didn't work, she became angry and aggressive, eventually running away and phoning her family to come and collect her. Chris picked her up and took her back to the children's home. There is a story from around that time that when Natalie arrived back one night at the home, She announced that she was on heroin, and they promptly drug-tested her, only to discover that she was clean. Despite some attempts by the home to repair the rift between Natalie and her family, by the time Christmas Day of 1991, her 16th birthday, came around, Natalie was ready to leave. It's at this point that it becomes really difficult to establish an order of events. We know that at some time during 1992, the last year of her life, 16-year-old Natalie moved to Norwich to live first at the YMCA and later on Drayton Road, where she stayed with two young men, one of whom was loosely described as her boyfriend. There's an interview from Tuesday the 24th of November 1992, four days after Natalie's murder, in which a reporter speaks to a woman named Rose Castle. Rose, who lived at Roughton, near Cromer, had reportedly kept Natalie as a lodger from May until September 92. It's Rose who told the papers that her only downfall was wanting to be grand too quick. She elaborated on this in the article, saying, 
She talked about getting a car, nice clothes and a mobile phone. The paper states that Natalie was on drugs when she first came to stay with Rose, but then told her to get off the drugs or she was out, and within a matter of weeks she was clean. For the few months that Natalie lived in Roughton, Mrs Castle found her to be a thoughtful, pleasant and caring girl, who Rose trusted to babysit for herself and her friends. Her room was clean and tidy, and she had a poster of Madonna on the wall, and a photo of herself with her siblings. Mrs Castle's daughter, who was 11, described Natalie as being like a big sister to her, and Rose said she was not a nasty child, just a mixed-up kid. She was gullible, easily led, and always looking for affection from others. It's unclear as to when exactly Natalie turned to sex work, but Rose Castle was under the impression that during the three months she lived with her, up until September of 92, she wasn't involved in that lifestyle. There's a quote in an article from 2004, in which Inspector Charles Greeney said, A sergeant saw her three or four weeks before her death and warned, You'll end up getting killed. The sergeant apparently later said, When I saw her in September, I told her she was on the road to damnation, but she didn't seem to care. After leaving Rose's home in Roughton, Natalie went back to Norwich, where she stayed in the flat on Drayton Road. There are various reports as to how much of an influence drugs were having on Natalie's life and decision-making around this time. Her mother Lynn felt as if she'd fallen strongly into addiction to cocaine and heroin, but others said that she only really dabbled and was never properly addicted. It's alleged, though, that the two young men with which she was staying were in the business of pimping, and that they at least held some of the responsibility for her decision to begin to work on the streets of Norwich. I did find an interview with one of them, a man named Andrew Clitheroe, who stated that he had repeatedly asked her to stop working in the red light district. He went on to tell reporters that Natalie regularly used cannabis and amphetamines, and that he and her had had some sexual contact, but they'd never had sex. In the words of the article, because of her activities as a prostitute. Andrew then went on to say, I tried to get her to stop, but she appeared to enjoy walking the streets. The more she went on doing it, the more tarty she became. She was unable to listen to people and she always wanted to prove something. He also said he was worried about her sharing the house in case police thought he was her pimp. Coincidentally, whilst researching Andrew, I found a small article from Thursday the 30th of July 1998, which states, A former Norwich man was found dead in a flat in Sydney, Australia, an inquest heard yesterday. Andrew Clitheroe, who was 26, was found with a woman who was seriously ill. Norwich Deputy Coroner Jacqueline Maclay said there was evidence of heroin having been taken. I can't find definitive proof that this was the same Andrew Clitheroe, but I suspect that there's a good chance that it is. It's not exactly clear what Natalie was up to in the weeks leading towards her death, but as she headed into November of 1992, there are a couple of instances which have been reported on. The first is a visit to Rose Castle in Roughton on the 10th of November. Rose told the papers that Natalie turned up at 3am frightened about her life in Norwich. There are no other details except that this was her last visit, her only other contact with Rose being a call six days later, 
in which she reportedly sounded happy and positive and was aiming to sort herself out. Presumably, as a result of this mindset, a couple of days before her death, Natalie also chose to travel to Mundesley to visit her mother, Lynn. This was the first time in a year that Natalie had been home, and she cut a very different figure to the one that Lynn Pierman had last seen. Her naturally brown hair had been dyed blonde, and she wore skin-tight trousers on her always thin frame. She had plenty of makeup on, and her nails were painted, Speaking later about this visit, Lynn told the newspapers, She rang to say she was coming, and I was longing to see her and hold her. Yet when she walked in the door, I was terrified. It was as though there was a thick fog of evil about her. She looked absolutely appalling, desperately ill, and dressed as you would expect a tart to dress. In another article from 2002 about this same visit, she's described by the author as looking every bit the cheap hooker. And I know I said I would try and remain neutral throughout this episode, but this is several instances in which someone has accused Natalie of being a tart or looking cheap. And I just want to point out that A, she was a vulnerable 16-year-old girl, and B, tart is always an insulting way to talk about a girl or a woman. It's based solely on the way someone chooses to dress and act and implies that female sexuality is something which shouldn't be flaunted. It's not a word that should be used about anyone. Addressing the other part of this quote, the thick fog of evil which apparently surrounded Natalie, it was a phrase which got picked up on in the media following her death. And every time I read it, I'm uncomfortable, although I suspect it says more about Lynn's mindset than Natalie herself. According to Lynn, Natalie's visit wasn't social. She wanted to get a passport and had ideas of travelling to Spain, but she needed her birth certificate first. There are various quotes and articles over the years about this last visit, and in them, Natalie's demeanour changed depending on which you read. Sometimes she needed the passport desperately, as she was running from someone or something. Sometimes it was more of a show-off, or, as the journalist Nick Davis put it, She was saying she'd won the war with her past. Her visit wasn't an offering of peace, it was a victory roll. Just a day after this visit, at around 11 o'clock in the evening, Natalie, or Maria as she was known to her punters, dressed in a black puffer jacket, walked from her flat on Drayton Road to Tombland in the heart of Norwich, and from there to the area known as the Block. This was the red light district, and it comprised Ruin Road, King Street, Burr Street, and some of the surrounding areas. On the evening of November the 19th, just before midnight, Natalie's first customer, a taxi driver, picked her up and drove her to Whitlingham Lane on the outskirts of the city, where the two had sex in the back of his car. He paid her £20 and dropped her off in the city centre. It wasn't long before her next punter, an unidentified man, picked her up in the early morning of Friday the 20th. This man took her back to his home, where they had sex for £30 whilst his baby daughter lay sleeping upstairs. After this, he dropped her off in the city. The last confirmed sighting of Natalie comes at around one o'clock in the morning, when she was seen by local restaurant owners at the junction of Ruan Road and King Street outside the ferryboat pub. 
If you've heard about the ferry boat, it's probably in relation to Steve Wright, the man dubbed the Suffolk Strangler, who killed five sex workers over the course of two months in the Suffolk town of Ipswich in 2006. Much earlier, in the 1980s, Steve Wright owned the ferry boat right in the heart of Norwich's red light district. His tenancy was reportedly over by 1988, but he's been linked with the murder of Natalie and two other Norwich cases ever since he first emerged as a suspect in the Ipswich murders. As far as I can establish, he's never really been a suspect in Natalie's case, though. It was around half past three on the morning of the 20th of November when a lorry driver, who was making his way down a cut-through road towards the A47 in an area known as Ringland Hills, spotted something in a lay-by by the side of Ringland Road. This is a small road, in an area nine or ten miles away from where Natalie was last seen, in a location populated with winding paths and remote woodland. When the lorry driver stopped to take a closer look in the lay-by, he was confronted with the sight of Natalie's body. She was still wearing gloves, but had been stripped from the waist down, her clothing underneath her with her boots under the top half of her body. The post-mortem examination would later reveal that her cause of death was asphyxia, and that at some point, probably with her murderer, she'd had unprotected sex, with semen being found on her body and un underbody garments. The day I travelled to Ringland Road was early December, a Saturday afternoon. This was another location that I'd had trouble pinpointing. It seemed as f at first as if it would be easy to find the lay-by. I was using shots from the time which showed a gaggle of police cars and vans along the side of the narrow, bramble and tree-lined road which led to the recognisable spot where Natalie's body was found. Nowadays, though, the lay-by has completely vanished and what was once a sizeable stopping place is now nothing more than vegetation and a tangle of branches and weeds. It took a fair time using Street View mixed with the historical overlays on Google Maps to confirm for definite that I had the right location, but it was worth it, because what I didn't understand from the images was just how narrow the lane was, or how remote the countryside feels despite its proximity to the A47. No one knows if Natalie deliberately let the man who killed her take her so far away from the block, nor why it is that no protection was used when they had sex. It's reported that there were no signs that Natalie had put up a struggle, and I even read one article that claimed that her death could have been inflicted with no more than one hand around her neck. Following the discovery of Natalie's body, a team, led by Detective Superintendent Ron Elliott, began hunting for anything which would lead them to her killer. Every piece of evidence uncovered was sent to the Police Forensic Laboratory at Huntingdon in Cambridgeshire to be tested. Officers also began canvassing the red light district. The women who worked in the area were, for the most part, reported as being very cooperative, which isn't always in the case in a situation like this but they were willing to help, and slowly officers began to build a picture of Natalie's last known whereabouts, and to interview the men with whom she'd spent the last night. While the taxi driver and the anonymous man whose home she'd visited were simple enough to trace, her killer was not so easy to find. In mid-January, police issued an e-fit of a motorist who they wished to interview. 
The man in the EFIT was the driver of a silver or grey G-Reg Saab, which had been seen on Rouen Road shortly before Natalie was killed. The man was described as being between the ages of 35 and 50, about 5 foot 4 to 5 foot 6. He had a beer belly, chubby pale face and was beginning to go bald. He wore a Rolex type watch and had a car phone. He was believed to be a London businessman who would regularly visit Norwich. I can't find anything else on this man, and there's nothing public to say that he's been identified or eliminated from inquiries. And there are very few details on other persons of interest, except for one man who was seen embracing a woman in St John's churchyard on the corner of Burr Street at 2am that morning, who again does not seem to have been traced. The frustrating thing about researching Natalie's death is that there are very few facts on the investigation itself. The Norfolk Police website reports the following, though. The investigation has interviewed over 4,000 people and a large number of men have provided samples for direct DNA testing. To date, the DNA profile obtained from the semen has not been matched despite a general search carried out on the National DNA database. The DNA from this semen discovered on Natalie's body and clothes represents a real hope that one day her killer will be identified. It's just a matter of waiting for him or a family member to end up in the system. Over the years, there have been plenty of people wishing to shift the blame from one to another for what happened to Natalie. In February of 1994, Lynn Pearmont sent the local government ombudsman a dossier claiming that social workers had failed to stop Natalie's descent into drugs and sex work. Less than six months previously, a county hall inquiry had exonerated Norfolk Social Services and dismissed the allegations. Lynn said, When I asked for Natalie to be put into voluntary care, I needed help to put her back on the straight and narrow. But I got quite the opposite. Natalie's death will have been entirely in vain unless lessons are learnt from it. Despite her pleas, though, the Ombudsman decided that the original County Hall inquiry had been thorough and fair. A spokesman for County Hall told the press, We have always understood why Mrs Pierman wanted to explore everything that happened to Natalie before her tragic death, though our own inquiries showed our staff acted professionally throughout. I found another article published in the EDP on Tuesday the 17th of September 2002 in which there's a quote from Stuart Betts, a County Manager of Community Support for Children's and Families Division at Norfolk County Council. He told the newspaper that there is a legislation under the Children Act of 1989 which guides social service work for children under 18. Technically, that framework should be available until children reach 18 but the Children Act has areas which lack clarity as soon as children are 16. A good example is, if we are looking after a child by voluntary arrangement with the parents' agreement, the parents can end that arrangement whenever they want. But when the child is 16 and the parent wants to end the arrangement, it's the child's wishes that prevail. It appears as if there was something of a grey area surrounding the duty of care towards a child once he or she reaches the age of 16. And for Natalie, who seems to have been desperate to leave the children's home and start living life, this murky area is where she ended up. Without knowing all the details, 
It's difficult to know who, if anyone, has a case to answer to as for how she found herself in the position she did. I read things which make me sad for Natalie and the ways in which what was obviously a very difficult time for her was handled by those around her. But then all of the blame just takes away from the real focus, which is that an unknown man strangled a vulnerable 16-year-old girl and left her half-naked in a lay-by. Four days after the discovery of Natalie's body, her mother spoke to the EDP. She said, I hope it will serve as a warning to other young girls tempted towards drugs and prostitution. I suppose that the problem is that there are always people looking to exploit vulnerability and naivety, and that a lot of the time, what starts off as harmless teenage rebellion only later becomes something worse. There is an obvious dichotomy between how Natalie saw her behaviour and how her mum and stepdad viewed it. For Lynn and Chris, Natalie was a girl overtaken by the fog of evil. To Natalie, she was rebelling, exploring the world, and a lot of the time she was having fun. But she was reportedly not always at peace with her life, and as Rose Castle said, she was a mixed-up kid, gullible easily led and always looking for affection from others. It wasn't until April of 1993 that Natalie's funeral could be held in Mundesley. It took place in the Methodist church just down the road from the graveyard where she would be buried. During the service, a reading was made from the leather-bound Bible which Natalie had received at birth, and Pastor Phil Norris said, we feel anger at those who supplied her with drugs. For them, Natalie is just another statistic of the trade. They, along with her killer, must share the responsibility for her death, and our anger must be channeled into helping other people not follow the way Natalie went. At the age of 16, she decided to take control of her life and started to use her body to finance her drug habits. Tragically, last November, her life came to a violent end. We feel desperate unhappiness that so young a life was caught up in events which led to so early a death. Her older brother, John, reportedly choked back tears as he read the poem, Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep. The mourners, who included people from all avenues of Natalie's life, walked in silence to the graveyard where her sister Jenny dropped a poem onto her coffin as it was lowered into the grave. The article by Nick Davies, Death of an Ordinary Girl, ends by speaking of Lynn Pierman. It says, When police finally finished, she buried Natalie behind the church on the cliffs overlooking the muddy brown sea at Mundesley. And sometimes now she goes back there and cries over the hummock in the grass and catches herself asking out loud, Natalie, Natalie, how could you do this to us? I thought of that line later, after I visited her headstone. I remember reading the inscription and that odd little quote from the Bible, Father forgive. When I got home, I looked up the full passage and found that it read, Jesus said, Father forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. After I read the quote, I couldn't help but think of Natalie and how desperate she was to escape the confines of Mundesley. For all that the graveyard by the sea is a beautiful place to rest, this is a girl for whom life should have been just beginning, 
a girl who hated the village in which she had spent her childhood. She was certainly sure that she didn't want to return to Mundersley, at least not then, and the man who killed her took away the chances she had to escape, to get that passport and to leave her life behind. She had no idea that she would end up buried near the cliffs at Mundersley. She wanted to be free and to see the world, and perhaps she would have succumbed properly to drugs and to the lifestyle that she had started to experience. But while she was still 16, in the grey area between childhood and adulthood, her only real downfall was wanting to be grand too quick. A thank you to everyone who has signed up on Patreon to support the show, including my new and returning patrons, Gary Croft, Jeff Meaders, Susan Adams and Rachel Seagrove. The next exclusive episode is out in just under a week. I'll be looking at the murder of Jean Constable, a case where the man responsible fully admitted in court that he'd killed her, and yet he served no time for her murder after the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. If you'd like to join them in contributing to the costs involved with producing each episode of Outlines, then you can do so at www.patreon.com forward slash the Outlines podcast, and the link is in the show description below. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.